0: Legal LGBTQ plus podcast. My name is Shane Filcher. I use all pronouns and I'm the executive director of the LGBT Bar Association and Foundation of Greater New York. This is the final Law Notes episode the December 2023 Law Notes episode of the podcast and it's my pleasure to be joined by Professor Emeritus Art Leonard, chief editor and writer of Legal's LGBTQ plus Law Notes. Law Notes is the most comprehensive monthly publication covering the latest legal developments, both in the United States and abroad, affecting LGBTQ plus people. I want to remind our listeners that the views expressed on our podcast are not an appropriate substitute for legal advice and may or may not reflect the
1: views of the Bar Association and or its foundation.
0: Professor Leonard, happy holidays. Thank you for joining us.
1: Glided to be with you, Shane. Despite all the stuff going on to distract us and everything, we We're still paying close attention to LGBT legal developments.
0: That we are, and we have quite the selection of topics for today's podcast, I wouldn't say that anything kind of flows neatly under one particular theme. So it's a little bit of a holiday grab bag to wrap things up for this year. So let's jump right in. I know last month we had an exciting preview of the docket for the Supreme Court. And very shortly after we recorded that podcast, there was already an update. Can you take us through briefly the news on Tingley?
1: Yes, the Tingley case. Tingley versus Ferguson is a decision by the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals reaffirming their earlier rulings many years ago in Pickup versus Brown that bans on conversion therapy do not violate the First Amendment rights of counselors. These uh, statutory bans, most state bans, and also their municipal and county bans around the country, say that performing conversion therapy on minors is, in fact, unprofessional conduct, Uh, that uh, all of the reputable professional associations concerned with this field say that conversion therapy should not be attempted on minors, that it can do severe psychological damage, and uh, that, in fact, it does not do what uh, its proponents claim it does, which is to reorient somebody into a uh, normative heterosexual sexual orientation. The interesting thing is the Washington state law on this applies not only to sexual orientation change efforts or SOCH as it's sometimes referred to, but also attempts to uh, persuade or get people who identify as transgender or as non-binary, to assume a normative heterosexual relationship and gender identity. And that seems to be what set off Justice Thomas and his dissent from the Supreme Court's denial of cert in the Tingley case, which took place on December 11th. We'll have many more details on this uh, in our January podcast, because it's going to be one of the Main articles in the January issue of Law Notes. But since we're recording this uh, several days after December 11th, we figured that the news that started to be denied at Tingley was very newsworthy right now because there is a circuit split. Uh, at least some people think there's a circuit split because the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals, unlike the Ninth Circuit in, in Tingley, the, uh, the 11th Circuit takes an opposing view in a case called Otto versus city of Boca Raton, uh, where it was a municipal ordinance. But there are many different grounds on which you could say the municipal ordinance was questionable, including the fact that regulation of licensed counseling is a state rather than a municipal function. But in any event, the 11th Circuit took the view that regulating conversion therapy when it is in the form of talk therapy, when it doesn't involve... The aversion tactics and the other things that have sometimes been used in the past. The, the claim in that case by the plaintiffs who are uh, practitioners, who are licensed counselors, was that all they do is talk to people. And, uh, and so uh, the 11th Circuit said, if you're just talking to people, it's speech, and it's pure speech, and it's not regulation of conduct, it's regulation of speech. The Ninth Circuit takes the view that it's regulation of conduct, of a, a so-called medical practice of therapy. And I like to put the word therapy in quotation marks because therapy tends to connote making people better when there's something wrong with them. And opponents of conversion therapy say that uh, it is mislabeled as such because it doesn't make people better. It doesn't even change people's sexual orientation. And that uh, as far as we are concerned, someone's sexual orientation is a given. And it's not uh, a an error of some sort. We'll have more about that next time. But the important thing to note as a side to this is that this was the one of the cert petitions that we discussed in the October-November issue that seemed most likely, if it was granted, to be able to be argued and decided this term of the court. The term of the court runs from the first Monday in October to the end of June. And uh, generally, cert petitions that are granted much after mid to late January will not be argued in that term of the court, uh, because uh, once the cert petition is filed, then the petitioner has a substantial period of time to file a brief on the merits, uh, as opposed to the cert petition, which was narrowly focused on the issue of whether this was a cert worthy case. But here is the chance for them to make their case. And then for the respondent to file a reply, there's an additional period of time. And then a response to the reply can be filed, and amicus briefs can come in, And by the time you're done with all that, you've probably hit the ceiling on the number of cases the court will hear arguments on in the current term. So there are cert petitions pending in other cases that we discussed in the October-November issue. Uh, The earliest that a cert petition among those pending is likely to be decided by the court as to whether they'll grant is probably early to mid-January, if then, because uh, there have been grants of extensions of time to file the necessary papers for the file to be completed and distributed to the justices for that conference. So they won't even be conferring on these until well later this week, one of them, the December 20 was the deadline that the court gave for the extension of time. So one of them will be discussed possibly at the court's conference this week. Then next week they're on holiday like everyone else in the world practically. And uh, cert petitions are rarely granted on the first conference that they're distributed. Uh, And the Tingley case itself was distributed nine times for conference before the court made a decision. And that's probably because Justice Thomas was writing his lengthy dissent. That probably extended the time. And we'll talk more about the dissent uh, in January. So that's the update on the Supreme Court.
0: We greatly appreciate the update and looking forward to the deeper dive in January. It sounds like we might Possibly have a June next year that doesn't have the usual nail biting as we approach Pride in terms of waiting for a decision.
1: That seems likely, unless they rush to grant one of the remaining cert petitions quickly. Mm. Uh, The extension of time was December 20th on one of the cases, and on the other cases, it was to early January. So we would be really running tight against the court's calendar and uh, the Speed with which a case that's granted cert actually gets to a hearing. So we'll see.
0: Sounds like we'll have a pretty good sense of where this is going by the time we meet again in January. I think so. Our next topic is actually not a case, but an announcement about law notes itself. We had the happy announcement earlier this month that Law Notes is going to be added to the available publications to assist pro se incarcerated people in the New York State prison system as part of the New York State Department of Corrections and Community Supervision, or sometimes known as DOCS, Law Library Program. Art, do you wanna tell us a little bit more about why it is so important to have this resource available within the prison system?
1: Well, it's, it's very important because most uh, people, most incarcerated people don't have legal representation once they're incarcerated. I mean, they may, they may have representation in the criminal process. Uh, they may have a defense lawyer uh, appointed for them or be represented by legal aid or may, maybe even a, could afford to hire a lawyer on their own who is gonna get a fee. But most of the prisoner litigation that we see uh, when we're preparing law notes, and we have a big section on prisoner litigation, every issue, uh, is pro se. And these people are very limited in the ability to access the material uh, necessary to put together a decent pro se complaint that will survive screening. Uh, a pro se complaint is usually accompanied by a petition to proceed in forma pauperis, which means that uh, because of the limited resources, if any, that uh, an incarcerated person has, there may be a waiver of filing fees, but, but the judge has to grant that and they're not always granted. And in addition, many of the people who file these pro se uh, cases need uh, really need help in order to put something together that's gonna withstand screening. And these pro se cases, uh, most district courts refer them to a magistrate judge who is not an Article Three judge. The magistrate judges are appointed by the court system, not by the president. And the magistrate judges are to screen them to determine whether they state a valid legal claim. And stating a valid legal claim is an art, as all of those who listen to this podcast who happen to have gone to law school are probably aware. It's It's not necessarily intuitive. And there are common errors that are made by pro se uh, people who file their petitions with the courts. Simple errors that, if explained to them, might uh, give them the opportunity to go back and redo it. And in in pro se petitions, when the judge who's doing the screening feels that there is the nucleus of a story buried somewhere, somewhere in this otherwise perhaps somewhat incoherent usually, handwritten complaint but they didn't do certain things that everyone should do like for example if you want to sue the state if you want to sue the prison for one thing you can't sue the prison you have to sue the state because the prison is not an entity that can be sued but many uh, people who are incarcerated don't realize that they don't know about jurisdiction they don't know about parties and standing and all these sorts of things and in addition Uh, If you're suing particular individuals like the warden or like uh, the correction officer who you feel did something to harm you that violates your constitutional rights, you have to specify who they are and explain what they did that violated your constitutional rights. And, for example, you want to sue the warden about something that a correctional officer did, you have to show that the warden had something to do with that other than being the warden the uh, chief supervisor of the prison. But there is no uh, automatic transference of liability up the chain of commands to the person who is the chief administrative officer of the prison. So you may want to sue the prison, uh, the corrections officer. And so you have to say what the corrections officer did. And it's not enough to say, well, they weren't adequately trained. You, You have to, if you want to say that, you have to provide more detail other than make sort of a general conclusory statement like that. So writing a complaint that will withstand screening is difficult. Uh, some, some magistrate judges actually do provide some help because usually if they, if they go through and they see there's a kernel of something in there, that this may actually be a valid claim if it's properly <laughs> done, they may provide some explanation in the opinion that they issue and send back to the incarcerated person explaining what's missing and say, and I will give you 30 days to file a new amended complaint. Be sure to include everything that was the original complaint, but also provide the following information. And sometimes people are up to doing that. Sometimes they're not. Uh, every now and then you see a magistrate judge writing an opinion, responding to an amended complaint. From a pro se uh, prisoner. And sometimes they will actually agree to a petition to appoint counsel. But uh, that's more likely to happen if they actually survive screening. And then uh, there has to be discovery. And it's kind of difficult for an incarcerated person to conduct <laughs> discovery in a prison. So uh, then you, you probably need counsel in, in most of those cases. Uh, but the point is that the resources available To people in prison are rather limited. And having law notes in the law library database in the New York prison system should be very helpful to prisoners because we try to explain in our accounts of the various cases what went wrong or what went right. Now, now, sometimes we're reporting that the judge found that a claim had been stated uh, because the, uh, the petitioner included the following information. That will be useful information to a prisoner who thinks that their constitutional rights have been uh, violated. It will be also useful for information for them to see accounts of cases, in which courts have agreed that constitutional rights are violated. So they have some idea of the scope of Eighth Amendment protection, which is the most relevant for people who are incarcerated after conviction. Uh, Or the 14th Amendment, which is more relevant to people who are in a jail or other kind of form of detention but haven't been convicted of anything, because the Eighth Amendment only applies to punishment for crimes after someone's been convicted. The 14th Amendment applies generally to the government, which includes prisons, when they are dealing with you and if they deal with you in a discriminatory way you might bring an equal protection claim or They somehow uh, violate your fundamental rights and some other aspect of due process claim. But it's helpful to be able to see cases that have actually done this, and not just to see the cases, but to see an explanation of the cases. Because uh, as first-year law students will tell you, when they first start reading cases, yes, they're written in English, but I don't necessarily understand what's going on. So with someone who doesn't have some basic law training, it would be helpful to be able to read in the law notes. So we were very excited to learn that the court system is going to make this available on their research library. Because otherwise, how would incarcerated people get access to it? Uh, It's uh, available on uh, Westlaw uh, under the serials, not under cases, but under under the uh, legal periodicals and things like that. There's some selective inclusion of things from the law notes database, but I've rarely seen prisoner cases in there. And I don't think most uh, prisons, or certainly not most jails, uh, give incarcerated people access to the for pay uh, research that's available on, on computers that every law student and lawyer knows about.
0: Well, well said. Hopefully this will be a tool that helps folks jumpstart their research. We know a lot of the prison facilities are also located in legal aid deserts, so to speak, where there isn't necessarily access to counsel on civil legal issues. And and also these are generally articles that are written by and for LGBTQ plus attorneys. So it's a really a, a happy piece of news to end the year with to know that we're gonna be added to the law library. So it's staying somewhat in the same vein in terms of talking about incarcerated individuals. I believe we are moving next to the Seventh Circuit to discuss a recent case.
1: Yes. Uh, and this This is a case that points up a circuit split on a very important issue. And that is when you are an incarcerated person and you feel that your constitutional rights have been violated, who can you sue? And if you claim that your rights are being violated, by a formal policy of the prison itself or the government as, to, as as set out in a statute, you can sue the government. And there's no doubt about that. You can sue the government and that could include suing the warden or other people in their official capacities. And the courts take the view of you're suing in an official capacity, you're actually suing the government. You're not suing the individual in their personal individual capacity. And usually you're seeking injunctive relief in those cases, but you may also be seeking damages. Uh, But what about suing individuals in their individual capacity? That is, let's say the harm that you feel has been done to you has been done by a correctional officer. And the correctional officer was not applying a formal policy of the institution or of the state. They're exercising their individual discretion to treat you in a way that violates your constitutional rights. Can you sue them for that? Can you use 42 U.S.C. Section 1983 uh, to get into federal court? And most of the cases we see are in federal court. Uh, To get into federal court to sue a government official for violating your rights, not by applying rule of the institution. For example, uh, many states had the rule that the prison will not provide gender-confirming surgery for an incarcerated person. They just categorically refuse. Well, then you could sue the government and say that their rule violates your rights. But what if they claim that they do provide uh, such care but it's controlled by a particular committee which exercises discretion and decides whether someone is entitled to it. Or that. And the committee turns you down. Can you sue the members of the committee? And there is no federal statute that necessarily says that you can't. Uh, uh, and, and the court has vacillated back and forth over the years on this. There are many cases going far back saying that you can sue an individual government employee, not in their official capacity, but in their personal capacity, their individual capacity. And uh, you can seek an injunction to get them to stop doing what they're doing if it's a continuing course of mistreatment. Or you can alternatively, or in addition, sue for damages for injuries that you have sustained. Uh, But that requires the court to figure out a mechanism for having jurisdiction over such claims. Uh, And uh, the point is that the Constitution, the Eighth Amendment or the 14th Amendment as the case may be, binds the government. And if you're suing a government employee in their individual capacity, you're not suing the government, you're suing them and trying to hold them liable. Does the Constitution bind them? Well, in the sense that they're required to follow the rules that are established by their institution, but on the other hand, they are. In, in most cases that we're talking about, they're exercising their own judgment. They're using discretion, and uh, to hold them liable, on a constitutional claim, the court has said in the past, would require the court to come up with some implied right of action because there is no statute that spells this out. And Congress has never cared to, to spell it out in general. There are particular statutes that authorize lawsuits. But for example, the statutes uh, concerned with public employment, uh, whether you're talking uh, state or, or local or uh, you're talking federal, uh, there are some situations where, uh, where a particular statute says that uh, someone can be sued, but the case that is sort of the modern precedent that we've all been relying on for uh, quite a long time is Farmer versus Brennan, which was a decision of the US Supreme Court from 1994. D. Farmer, a transgender, Person who was incarcerated in a federal prison, claimed that her Eighth Amendment rights were violated because they did not take reasonable steps to protect her from harassment and attacks by other inmates and even correction officers. And she wanted to sue the correction officers who she said had placed her in these situations and had not taken appropriate care to protect her. And she had been uh, physically assaulted, raped, And it was a horrendous set of facts to read about. And she tried to sue various individuals in the prison system, in the federal prison system. And the question for the court was whether there was a right of action to sue them in their personal capacities, because she was seeking damages against them. And the court decided that there would be a right to sue if she could show that they subjectively knew about the danger that she was facing and were deliberately indifferent to whether the harm occurred, did not take reasonable steps to protect her, that she could sue in that situation. Uh, But the D Farmer case relied very heavily on an earlier case called Bivens. The Bivens case was a suit against a whole bunch of unnamed FBI agents. And the individual claimed that these FBI agents had violated his Fourth Amendment constitutional rights by conducting unlawful searches and seizures. In violation of the Fourth Amendment, which generally requires a warrant or requires certainly reasonable cause to believe that someone has contraband or uh, that there's uh, some extenuating circumstances that you wouldn't have time to get a uh, to get a warrant in order to, to conduct a search of something that's going to disappear if they, if there's any lapse of time between the time that a reasonable uh, suspicion arose. Uh, so there are exceptions. The court, uh, Supreme Court, has never said you have to have a search warrant literally in every case. There are uh, exigent circumstances, they call them. Uh, but uh, in that case, the Supreme Court laid out an analytical framework for deciding whether you could sue the agents themselves, and they said the uh, the agents have to have been aware that there is a constitutional right not to uh, just arbitrarily or randomly su- uh, subject people to searches and to seizures of their property. Uh, and uh, the court said there would be an implied right of action then against these individual government officials in their individual capacity. Uh, and there were a few cases following up on that in which the court referred to a Bivens cause of action. One of them was Farmer versus Brennan. The Farmer case. Uh, District Court had dismissed her claim, and the Supreme Court said she had a right to sue. Here's what she has to prove. Uh, And they mentioned at the beginning of their opinion in Farmer v. Brennan that it was a Bivens action, because that's what they've come to be called as relying on the the Bivens case, which is from about 20 years earlier. Uh, and later in the case they mentioned Bibbs again when they were talking about what the burden of proof would be and who it would be allocated to. And, uh, this was a somewhat controversial part of the decision where they said that the uh, official that you're suing has to have personally been aware of the danger that you were in, in order to invoke the eighth amendment in that case. Uh, and there have been some subsequent cases. That have applied Bivens. uh one uh was a case involving a uh an employee of in a congressional office and the employee claimed that she was subjected to sex discrimination by the congressperson uh, and wanted to sue personally on that uh, and uh, this was at a time when uh, there wasn't a mechanism under title seven to do that uh, and uh, the court found an implied right of action there And then there was a case, and this is a case that that was very important to us, uh, because the court held that uh, someone who uh, did not receive medical care in a prison, when they were aware of a serious medical condition and they uh, exhibited deliberate indifference, uh, that uh, you could sue. You could sue under a type claim. Uh, that was uh, Carlson versus Green, the name of the case. Uh, it was someone who uh, had a serious uh, asthma condition and they did not provide even minimally adequate medical care and su- suffered a serious injury as a result. Uh, but then there's a recent case in which The Supreme Court said that they regretted the Bivens decision. And although they would treat as as precedents, Bivens and the uh, case involving the Congressman's employee and the case involving the inadequate medical care, they would consider those as coming within the sphere of Bivens. They were opposed to finding any new fact patterns or or, uh, sets of circumstances that would be considered to be part of the Bivens case. They weren't gonna overrule it. They felt that it was uh, perhaps a mistaken decision, but they were gonna to stick to it, but only for those types of fact patterns. They said that the federal courts do not have authority to recognize new courses of action for other fact patterns. Right. So luckily with the Carlson case, many of the cases that we've been reporting on which involve uh, suing particular prison officials, especially prison healthcare officials, have involved denial of gender-affirming care and denial of related things to gender-affirming care, like commissary items and things of that sort, or uh, denial of HIV medication or interruptions in HIV medication. Those all come within the same sphere of the Carlson case, which involve the denial of medical treatment uh, for serious medical uh, issues. So no question that under Bivens, you could sue those. And under the more recent case of the Supreme Court, the Ziegler case, that comes within the general scope that's comparable to that case where the uh, where the person was denied treatment for their asthma. But now comes a Seventh Circuit case where the court says you can't rely on Brennan versus Farmer, or or you can't rely on Bivens for an inmate who claims that his Eighth Amendment rights were violated by uh, a corrections officer, and he wants to sue the corrections officer. And what was the violation? Well, the there was a corrections officer who was supposed to uh, distribute mail, including parcels and things like that and refused to give this inmate, uh, Mr. Sargent, a uh, Roy Sargent, a book that he had ordered. And he filed a grievance against this CO, Ms. Cruz, who had commented on his sexual preferences and refused to give him the books that he had ordered. And I'm assuming from that, which may or may not be correct that Sergeant is either gay or bi or trans, uh, but uh, it doesn't say specifically. It just says that that uh, he filed this grievance against Cruz, and another corrections officer, Aracely Barfield, who was his case manager in the prison, showed Sergeant the prison's response to the grievance, which was signed by Cruz, and Sergeant protested. He said. The grievance shouldn't have been sent to Cruz to decide whether to grant it, because she was the subject of the grievance. That violates the prison's procedures. And uh, he was uh, really uh, evidently not particularly temperate in his remarks to Barfield. So Barfield was irritated by Sargent and angrily told other people about the grievance. And this led Sergeant to file a separate grievance against Barfield. And Sargent claims that Barfield retaliated against him for filing this grievance by repeatedly putting him in cells with prisoners that she knew were violent. And Sargent had been cooperating with law enforcement and people who were known as a cooperator are particularly vulnerable to assaults by other inmates. Uh, So uh, he had this new claim, which he filed pro se, uh, his claim that Barfield's actions caused a physical harm and were undertaken with deliberate indifference to his safety in violation of the Eighth Amendment. Subsequently, after he filed the suit, he was transferred to another prison. So any claim he might have for injunctive relief against Barfield is gone because she is no longer in a position to do anything to him. He's in another prison, but he wants damages because he says he got into several fights as a result of this with other inmates and suffered injuries and things, and he would like to have some kind of compensation. So he filed suit, and he was relying in filing the suit on Bivens, of course, and on Farmer versus Brennan. And the court, the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals, said that as a result of the Ziegler case and its Clear statement by the court that Bivens actions would be confined to the fact patterns addressed in Bivens and the two subsequent cases that it mentioned, it didn't mention Farmer versus Brennan and Ziegler. The court said, therefore, Farmer is no longer a good precedent because it's not one of the cases that was listed. This means if at least within the seventh circuit, and at least one other circuit, the court relied on one circuit, but it said one circuit disagrees with us and uh, has allowed uh, claims uh, by prison inmates under, under the Eighth Amendment to go under Bivens. Uh, because, after all, uh, Bivens was used in Farmer. And the Supreme Court has never repudiated Farmer or overruled it. But uh, this Seventh Circuit panel uh, voted two to one. That this had this case had to be dismissed that the district court had no jurisdiction in this case because it didn't fall within one of the three uh, authorized Bivens type fact patterns that the Supreme Court mentioned in the Ziegler case, uh, and as I mentioned, uh, Mister Mr. Bar- Mister Sargent filed pro se originally, and. Uh, along the way when the case got up to the Seventh Circuit he had counsel it's, it's not clear uh, how he got counsel whether it was through some kind of uh, prison assistance program or whether it was by appointment by the Seventh Circuit because uh, when cases go up to the Court of Appeals to be argued uh, it would be rare I would think to have a an incarcerated person brought to the Court of Appeals to make it make an oral argument although I have a friend who was who was clerking in in the second circuit who tells me that he has seen uh, pro se people argue before the second circuit, but I don't know if those were prisoner cases, but he says, sometimes they actually win. (laughs) That's probably because they have a pretty clear case. Uh, But in any event, this is a significant issue. And uh, there is a circuit split as to uh, whether Farmer versus Brennan is still good law. Uh, The way I, I titled the article in in this issue of Law Notes. uh, I said, uh, Wither Bivens and LGBT incarcerated plaintiffs. The Seventh Circuit trashes Farmer versus Brennan as a president. Uh, There is a dissent uh, by uh, Circuit Judge David Hamilton. Uh, Interesting thing is uh, the circuit judge who wrote the opinion for the court was appointed by President Biden. And the uh, judge. Who uh, wrote the dissent was appointed by President Obama, <laughs> David Hamilton. And, and he said, Look, Farmer versus Brennan has never been disaffirmed or overruled by the Supreme Court or even negatively discussed by the Supreme Court. It wasn't mentioned in the Ziegler case, but one of the three cases that were mentioned was a case involving a uh, prison inmate. Who was suing about uh, an Eighth Amendment violation? So why not just say that it with Eighth Amendment violations to bring can bring a action? So unclear what, what happens next. Uh, there is a firm that's uh, representing the, a major firm, Arnold and Porter K Scholler, LLP is is representing, and perhaps they will file first for on bank review or maybe for a cert petition. So uh, this could end up going up. But uh, with the current Supreme Court, this might just give them another nudge to overrule Bivens entirely. So it's, it's dangerous to file the cert petition since we know that the court already disfavors the, the Bivens' cause of action. Under stereo decisis, they're gonna allow it to still be used in a limited range of cases. But otherwise, they say it's up to Congress to decide under what circumstances uh, someone could sue a government official, because government officials generally have qualified immunity for being sued. And so you have to show that the uh, right that you're seeking to vindicate has been well-established in appellate law. Uh, That's how you get out of that qualified immunity trap. So you see how complicated it is and why it's a good idea that New York state prisoners are going to have access (laughs) to line up explanations of these cases.
0: Exactly. And we appreciate your careful walkthrough of such a complicated fact pattern in procedural history. Our final case for today takes us in a completely different direction. If you're happily married or don't practice matrimonial law, you might not think about how important it is to calculate the number of years that a couple is married if they become divorced in terms of how do you distribute things like retirement accounts and other types of property? So where does that leave us with some of these early odd same-sex marriages that may or may not have been recognized by New York State or perhaps they were couples that we remember at the beginning of the century that were, so-called collecting, you know, basically collecting marriage licenses from states that were affirming before we had a burger fell before we even had legislation in New York state. So it sounds like you have a very fascinating case of a lesbian divorce that falls into one of those pockets. Tell us a little bit about that.
1: Yeah, this is a, a New York Appellate Division ruling from November 15th. The case is Makoff against Blumke-Makoff, Dash makoff And uh, this is a lesbian couple who had a Jewish wedding on July 21st, 2005, a rabbi presided. They had the traditional chuppah, which is the canopy that's held up by members of the congregation over the couple who were being married. They had a ketubah, which is a Hebrew language document, which is a formal contract of marriage that the couple signed with the witness and the rabbi. And they had the whole ceremony. They had 100 odd people there at the the event. This was in 2005. They didn't have a marriage license because New York wasn't issuing marriage licenses to same-sex couples until July 2011 after our marriage equality law was finally passed by the state legislature. Uh, So their 2005 marriage at the time had no legal significance. New York did not have common law marriage. At that time, common law marriage was an old doctrine of the English common law, which many states followed until relatively recently in the 20th century, under which a couple could just proclaim themselves married and live as a married couple, represent themselves as married to others, do the things that married couples do in terms of joint finances and purchases of property and things of that sort. And the state would recognize that most states have abolished common law marriage. New York abolished it by statute in the 1930s. Uh, So the only situation now where New York courts would recognize a common law marriage, that is a marriage that was not performed pursuant to a marriage license, uh, were if people had a common law marriage that was formed in another state that recognized them and then they moved to New York, New York would recognize that common law marriage. Uh, Or if, uh, let's see, I think that's the only the only situation. Or if they were they were legally married in a state that allowed a marriage that New York wouldn't allow, they might uh, recognize it as a common law marriage, sort of thing. But uh, in this case, the couple married religiously in two thousand five. They lived together uh, as a married couple. Uh, after New York enacted the marriage equality law, they got a license. They got married again. This time it was legal. And this one lasted for a while, but then uh, Robin, the, the two women are Robin and Linda. Robin filed for divorce on January 23, 2019. And in her divorce petition, she claimed that they were married on July 28, 2011. When Linda filed an answer to the petition several months later, she did not refute or dispute the July 28th, 2011 date, and the court awarded her certain relief pending a final ruling on the divorce, including temporary spousal maintenance, which suggests to me that uh, Robin was the main breadwinner in that family, uh, or at least that uh, that Linda deeded uh, spousal maintenance. Maybe she didn't have a job or maybe she had limited means of some sort. But at any rate, at some point she woke up, or maybe counsel woke up, and they realized that maybe they should be able to make a bigger claim in terms of equitable distribution of the marital assets if they could date the marriage back to 2005. Now, the judge who wrote the opinion for the appellate division, uh, Justice William Ford, does not go into any detail in the opinion about what the assets are in dispute. But it seems pretty clear to me that there have to be assets that predate the 2011 marriage of some significance or else Linda wouldn't bother with this. You know, why, why quibble about this? But she wanted to file an amended answer to the original petition giving uh, the 2005 date as the beginning of the marriage. And if uh, that would be recognized as a marriage from 2005, then any property jointly acquired since then would be marital property. And she might have uh, further uh, claims uh, for other sorts sorts of assets. Uh, And we're not told what they are. But in any event, the issue is, is this retroactive? Is the marriage equality law retroactive? And one thing that tends to support the idea that it should be retroactive is the Obergefell decision uh, from 2015. Uh, In the Obergefell decision, the US Supreme Court said that same-sex couples have the same right to marry that different sex couples have under the 14th Amendment of the Constitution, the Due Process Clause. And the 14th Amendment became part of the Constitution after the Civil War in the 1860s. And so an argument could be made that if that right existed, then the failure of the state to allow people to marry. Was violating their rights all the way back to then. now that argument has not necessarily carried a lot of weight, but people can make it, but they wanted to make this argument here that the marriage equality law should be applied retroactively to this 2005 marriage. And the trial judge, Suffolk County Supreme Court Justice John Leo, denied Linda's motion to amend the complaint on two grounds. First, he said the marriage equality law did not go into effect until 2011 and was not by its terms retroactive. That is, it didn't say anything about the legal status of marriages, informal marriages or religious marriages or marriages conducted out of state for that matter. Uh, That weren't legal because New York was not the first state to allow same sex marriage that was Massachusetts and that was in 2004. Uh, So, uh, he said, well, it says nothing in the marriage equality law about retroactivity. And secondly, he says it would be prejudicial to allow the amendment. In light of the time that had elapsed that is many, many months had gone by before uh, uh, Linda asked to file an amended answer with the new date. And he said that uh, she had already been awarded temporary relief after she filed her original answer. That means the case had already gone past the initial pleading stage too late. Uh, And uh, the appellate division decided in this case that Justice Leo was wrong on both issues. Uh, Although the act did not specifically say it was retroactive, what it did say was that for all purposes of New York law, same-sex and different-sex marriages should be treated the same, and there are precedents under New York law for deeming a marriage that was performed without a license but otherwise in conformity with New York law as valid for various purposes, and Justice Ford cited three prior New York cases, each of which said that uh, and they were all talking about different sex marriages uh, that were performed without marriage licenses that said if they met the other formalities of a marriage there has to have been a solemnization of the marriage which usually involves going before somebody who is authorized to conduct marriages and then conducting the marriage even though there's no marriage license and the main uh Thing about this is, all three of those cases involve religious marriage officials. Two of the rabbi, one of an imam for a Muslim marriage ceremony uh, that was performed without a license. The same with the, with the two rabbi cases, there was no marriage license. However, in all three of those cases, the court found, for one reason or another, that the marriage shouldn't be recognized. However, the court said in dicta that if the following formalities had been followed, it would be recognized. And so what, the, what uh, Justice Ford's opinion is doing, it's citing three cases that say it's possible that a marriage could be recognized if all the formalities are complied with other than the marriage license. They just haven't done it yet. Uh, two of them were in New York. One of them was solemnized in New Jersey by an imam in New Jersey, but the couple lived in New York and they wanted it to be recognized in New York. And it seems that it's the law of the place where it's performed that counts. And New Jersey does not have any case law recognizing unlicensed marriages under any circumstances. And they abolished common law marriage law ago. Uh, so Justice Ford said, well, let's decide whether it is appropriate for the court now to retroactively recognize this 2005 religious marriage. He said, first of all, the statute was a remedial statute. It was intended to remedy a problem in the law, in this case, the denial of a fundamental right to marry. Now, Obergefell tells us it's a fundamental right, although Obergefell was decided several years after the New York, New York marriage equality law was passed. But the New York equality law itself, in its finding section, describes the right to marry as a fundamental right and says it should be open to same-sex couples. So for purposes of New York law, the legislature has said it's a fundamental right. And he said the New York state tax department has already interpreted the statute as being retroactive for parties who prove that they would have married, had it been possible, usually by showing some sort of civil union ceremony or some kind of marriage contract or agreement between them. And there were people who were doing that before we had uh, marriage licenses in New York. Uh, There were people who were doing living together agreements. Uh, There was a pretty active portion of legal of practitioners in the family law area who were helping couples do these living together agreements uh, they are some couples who would had civil union ceremonies new york city had provided the possibility to register as civil union partners long before the marriage equality law way back in the, 18, in the 1990s well, i said 1890s in the 1990s when uh, mayor dinkins set up a registry by executive order in new york city and The city under Mayor Giuliani passed a uh, civil union statute people could register under. Uh, So in terms of proving that they would have married legally if it had been possible, people who entered into those relationships would have a pretty good argument that they would have. Uh, In addition, uh, he pointed out New York courts had recognized same-sex marriages that were legally contracted in other jurisdictions before New York had a marriage equality law. In fact, one of the reasons uh, that I and my partner went up to Connecticut to get married was because Connecticut had same-sex marriage a few years before New York. And once the New York court started recognizing out-of-state same-sex marriages, I said to my partner, we should go up to Connecticut, which was the narrow state that was doing it, and we should get married. And he said, what for? We've been living together 30 years. And I said, well, there are certain legal legal things that fall from that that would be perhaps helpful and protective of both of our interests. So we went up to Connecticut and got married. And then there were people who going to Canada to get married. Uh, there were same-sex marriages in Canada as early as 2003, 2004. Uh, so uh, New York, courts had recognized those. So taking all these factors together, the court decided Linda's argument for retroactive recognition of the 2005 marriage was not, quote, patently devoid of merit as Justice Leo had written in his decision. Uh, and therefore, it was improper for him to deny the amendment to Linda. Now, this means that the case goes back to Justice Leo out of Suffolk County and uh, he has to decide whether they've met all the formalities necessary under this ruling for that 2005 marriage to be recognized. Because remember, uh, two of those Prior cases that had dicta, that is, words not necessary to decide the case, that the marriages would have been recognized if they complied with all the formalities other than the marriage license. Those were cases where marriages were performed by rabbis. So, you know, we're going to have to take a look back. Uh, The case goes back to uh, Justice Leo, and he's going to have to decide, uh, in the first instance, the facts here whether uh, Linda has a valid claim that her 2005 marriage should be recognized but she should have been allowed to amend. And the court said the fact that it took her several months to come up with this theory uh, was no reason to deny her right to amend because the case had not gone much further yet. Uh, And evidently there was a dispute about what was marital property here. It was subject to equitable distribution. Uh, So an important decision, partly because the court says, as far as it could tell, this is a a question of first impression Uh, in terms of a same-sex marriage in New York that predated the marriage equality law. And the marriage equality law, of course, was a major component of the court's analysis here of having authority to do this, to recognize this marriage. So a good outcome there, I think, at this point.
0: It's a fascinating case, and it's really hard to believe that this issue hasn't come up sooner. Yeah. We'll definitely keep us posted next year what happens. Or maybe,
1: maybe it came out the trial court resolved it in favor of the earlier recognition date, and so it's never been in the appellate division before. Because he mm-hmm. said there's no appellate authority in New York on this. It's a question of first impression.
0: Good point. Good point. We'll definitely keep us posted on the outcome next year. We had a shorter issue this month, of course, compared to our uh, double stuffed issue last month with October-November combined and just so much that was happening as it always seems like there's so much happening. So we got through our cases pretty quickly today. If you have something of note, I would love to hear it.
1: Yeah, this was this is a quickie. Uh, Federal District Court in Washington State granted summary judgment on the sexual orientation discrimination claim by a married lesbian mother whose verbal and written job offers were rescinded when the employer, World Vision Incorporated, A self-described Christian charitable organization learned of her sexual orientation and marital status. They offered the job to be a customer service representative working remotely from home. She was basically like having a little call center at home. You know, uh, she would deal with customers on the phone and it was basically a fundraising job. They didn't know her sexual orientation or marital status when they made the offer. She responded to uh, a listing on a website of a position for a customer service representative by World Vision Incorporated. She applied. They interviewed her over the phone. Maybe they had Zoom interviews. uh, But uh, they made her an offer and they followed up with a written offer. And she emailed them. And this was this was her mistake. She emailed them, said, hey, we're, my wife and I are expecting our first child, and I'm pregnant. And we're wondering, uh, will I be able to take some time off? I know as a new employee, I might not be uh, able to have vacation time right away, but we're expecting. And this blew up at World Vision. They were, they were doing all these internal deliberations. What do we do? And they rescinded the, the job offer because they said this violates our religious beliefs. We're a christian organization we don't recognize same-sex marriages uh and she sued them under title seven and the washington law against discrimination for discrimination based on sexual orientation and they raised as defenses the church autonomy doctrine the religious entity exception under title seven and the washington law against discrimination the first amendment ministerial exception the first amendment free exercise uh, of religion, the First Amendment Freedom of Expressive Association, and the bona fide Occupational Qualification Defense at the Title VII. The judge rejected all of them and granted summary judgment to the plaintiff. In a fascinating decision, uh, read about it in the December uh, issue of Law Notes, he went through each of these things and said, none of those defenses hold up. She wasn't a minister. It wasn't a religious position. World vision is the church. So the church, and the church autonomy, well, the church autonomy doctrine basically says that the government will not interfere with churches and synagogues and and mosques, you know, religious uh, institutions of that sort in their internal personnel policies. But world vision is the church. So it, it doesn't enjoy church autonomy. And as far as the Title Seven religious entity exception, that's an exception to the rule against discrimination based on religion. It doesn't excuse religious organizations from the obligation not to discriminate based on the other characteristics listed in Title Seven: race or color, sex, and national origin. They still can't uh, discriminate on that basis so uh, and and she's not a ministerial exception. She was a you know a telephone person dealing with fundraising. She had nothing to do with the religious activity of the organization. So it's a very interesting case. And, uh, I, I refer people to the uh, December issue of Law notes for that.
0: Well, thank you for sharing that case with us to close things out. Can you guess what our most popular episode was this year?
1: Most popular episode? Uh, the one reporting on the Supreme Court opinion in 303 Creative. You got it. Yeah, that would generate clicks. <laughs> What's going on with the Supreme Court? <laughs>
0: It sure did. And we're really blown away by the numbers this year. How many of you tuned in here in New York City, here in New York State, here in the US and even abroad. So Professor Leonard, thank you so much for joining us today. And thank you as always to our listeners. We know you're out there. We appreciate you. We're looking forward to having conversations with you in the new year. Until then, please continue to like, share and find us on Apple Music, Spotify, Podbean or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts.